So this morning we're going to uh, dabble a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And <clears throat> uh, you can actually go to the site of the Sermon on the Mount. You can actually go to the Mount, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which is not a sea, it's a lake. And there you will see the place where Jesus preached. Now, how do we know that that's the place? Well, it's tradition. But guess what? Some of you can take me around this building, and you can say, this happened here, and this happened here, and this is where we had the flood of concrete come out of the wall, and you can tell me all kinds of things, and even though there is no evidence of it as such, and in fact, in the land of Israel, you can go all over the place. And very often what they've done is that they've actually built a church over top of the particular site. So in the place where uh, Peter's house was, you'll remember how the Lord Jesus cured uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And you can actually see the remains of the house. But it's really interesting because, of course, what early Christians did was they built a church around it. And then uh, a number of uh, generations later, they built a bigger church around it. And right now, there is actually another church over top of it, and it sits like a big spider over top of the archaeological site. It is quite something to be in the place where these events happened. Our guide said there are no atheists in Israel. Why? Because the evidence of God at work, the places where Jesus walked, you see them everywhere. You can see uh, Rachel's tomb. Now, now that's going back a little bit before the time of the Lord Jesus. You can see the place where these things transpired. And so we are now, as it were, listening in to what Jesus had to say to the crowds that followed him. Now, why did they follow him? Well, let's go back to chapter 4 for just a moment. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That sounds to me like a pretty good attention getter, don't you think? especially in a day before antibiotics and hospitals and all the other things that we take for granted. Let's understand the impact that the ministry of Jesus had. And let's understand that the Beatitudes make no sense apart from this background. Because you see, the Lord Jesus is going to do some teaching which is going to force them to look higher to see something more important than, yes, physical healing, than, yes, something to eat that day, even though we know how important those are. And they are, in fact, tokens that point us to something bigger and more important. Let's understand the sober reality of everyday life in Jesus' time. There were many people, many poor people, who lived hand-to-mouth. 50% mortality by the age of 19. Anybody 19 here? Half of you would be actually dead by this time. You see? 
Quite astonishing. Infant mortality, one quarter of babies born would die in the first year. Anybody 55 plus here? Oh, a few of you, all right. Well, guess what? If you were living back then, 90% of you, nine out of 10, count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Only one of you, only one of me, <laughs> would be around. Life was tough. And so the Lord Jesus is speaking to this multitude who are following him, who see in him hope, who see that there is someone here who might feed them, who might bring them liberty, who might do all the things that they had absolutely no chance of seeing otherwise. And so I've thought of some of the things that they might say, I'm tired of being poor and good. Ever say that kind of thing to yourself? Psalm 73 is all about that. The bad seem to get ahead. You notice that? Yeah, nothing new there. Life is hard, another sickness, another death, another tragedy, another bill. Oh, the bumps and the bills and the bruises of life. And, of course, here's another one that we hear now, and I'm certain they heard then, if you want to get ahead, you got to look out for number one, right? Do you hear that? And then, what if my crops fail? Will there be enough to feed my family? And, praise God, we live in a land of abundance, so let's understand that even today, there are millions who actually live hand-to-mouth. I'm hungry. Don't talk to me about feeding my soul. I just want something in my stomach. Mercy, forgiveness. Do you know what my neighbor did to me? Oh. My heart. What will satisfy my heart? Peace. Help my neighbors get along? Make up with my estranged family? <laughs> Life was hard. Life is hard still. And it is short and it is transient. Will I think about eternity? If you didn't expect to live beyond about the age 25, would you look at life differently than the way you look at it now? You might. So there's something to be said for being conscious of this. In fact, it seems to me that the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of that. He is pointing to something more. He wants us to do a reality check. And let's understand that he can say this because he is the one who demonstrated that he can feed the hungry, that he can cure the lame, that he can make the blind to see even raise the dead. And so he can say, no, this isn't it. Look higher. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or of the material things that you have. So let's do a little reality check. You see, the ultimate realist, Jesus is saying, is this. That realist knows how poor we are before God, how empty we are when we are full of self, full of ego, how sorrow will touch us all, and simply hardening our hearts is no real answer. How small is our strength, and all of us will succumb to death. 
how right to be humble in the face of mortality and our sinfulness. Think of the prayers of Job. The ultimate realist knows how much we need mercy. All of us need others, and all of us need others to be good to us, kind to us. Many of you will know the name Stephen Hawking. Some think that Stephen Hawking rivaled the genius of Isaac Newton, who is often listed as the greatest of scientists. But Stephen Hawking had a very, very pessimistic view of the universe, one in which there was no sense to it. It was just pure accident. He thought of the world as a mindless, purposeless accident, and yet everything in his personal life shouted mercy. You will know that Stephen Hawking was in a wheelchair, severely limited, and if it were not for the mercy and the kindness of those who equipped him with the devices so that he could communicate. What would we know of the genius locked within this man who could barely communicate? Do we know about the sacrifice that his wife made in order for him to do what he did? And yet, in his view of the world, there was no place for this. It was just blind accident. Friends, Let's not listen to Stephen Hawking. Let's listen to Jesus. Let's listen to Jesus. And you see how the realist knows that when we lash out at others in need of mercy because of our own secret insecurity, and isn't that why we lash out so often? Never admitting our own need for mercy and forgiveness don't we understand what we're doing? How divided our hearts are, how mixed our motives, how petty our motives, how impossible to keep ourselves centered on the things that really matter and keep out the stuff that messes up. How difficult to be active in making peace, not just shutting down others, not just keeping our nose clean, but in building bridges of trust and love and gentleness, personally and publicly. Now, I've just restated the Beatitudes. Did you notice that? That's all I've done. And so the Lord Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why poor in spirit? Because so often the poor understand that they must depend on God. When there's no food in the house, you pray for manna from heaven. I preached on the parallel text to this, found in Luke chapter 6, to a group of very, very, very poor people, a marginalized group in India, and they had virtually nothing. They were given a piece of land hardly bigger than this big room to live on as the tribal group. They had virtually nothing the men were off hunting illegally because it's illegal to hunt wild animals in India. And the women, the children, the older people were there. And I was to preach it. I said, Lord, what in the world can I say to them? And what will they hear if I say, preaching out of Luke chapter 6, Blessed are the poor. 
They're going to say, yeah, easy for you to say. Look at you. You look pretty prosperous. And yet somehow there was a miracle that happened because they didn't hear me. They heard the promise of God, the word of Jesus, who speaks to us in our need. And they understood that the way of the world is not the way it's going to be forever. That God will turn everything upside down. So now it is the rich and the powerful who have it all. But one day, one day, God will set things right. Aren't you happy about that? Amen. So let's recognize our spiritual poverty before God, that we depend on Him for absolutely everything. Blessed are those who mourn. And our Savior is one who identifies with us. And in the providence of God, He gave, Lord gave uh, the baby Jesus a wonderful mother who understood deeply how to face adversity, how to face trouble, how to deal with mourning. And we see her faith in this. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And this is Mary, the young woman, the teenager, if you like, who had received this very disturbing message through the prophet who said a sword will pierce your own soul too. So friends, if you're looking to lead life uh, free of all sorrow, you're living on the wrong planet. That isn't the way it is. But we have this. We can be prepared like Mary because of the promise of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to unfold being meek the way I should, but this is about strength under control. And God says that the world belongs to we who will show strength under control, who will exercise gentleness in our strength, who will use it in respect, our strength in a respect of others, to lift and to help and to protect the weak and the needy. And how about this hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Barclay, the commentator, says, Oh, the bliss of those who long for total righteousness as the starving long for food. Have you ever been starving? You've been hungry, but have you been starving? And those perishing of thirst long for water. Now, I have been in desert places, and let me tell you, you get awfully dry in desert places. And you wonder, am I going to survive if I don't get water soon? For they will be truly satisfied. And God meets us in our extremity. And of course, blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy and forgiveness is at the very center of our life in the Lord. Matthew 6, the Lord, after teaching us how to pray... And we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. 
Did you hear that? But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Not because you're earning it, but simply because this is the reality. We have not received it unless we have also demonstrated that in being able to forgive others. And I think this is still a really important question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is the true measure of your being forgiven? Sometimes I think that we want to play fast and loose with the Scripture. We say we believe the Scriptures, but we don't want to believe this one. Because this requires that I deal with something in my own heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You cannot see God as he really is without seeing your heart as it really is. Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Have you noticed how these are really the popular themes of uh, television and movies? Jesus says these are the things that defile us. Why is it that we are interested in these things? I'm still working on my attitudes, behaviors, and character. How about you? I'm still on this journey. And if we want to see God more clearly, let's be honest about where we are and appreciate that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I always have a good chat with the Lord on the way in. I drive something over 100K to get here. And the Lord and I always have a good chat. Because I can tell you, I am certainly like you. Oh, I shouldn't say that, right? <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. What does this world need? Have you listened to our world leaders? Had, did you listen to our candidates this uh, recent election? Blessed are the peacemakers. I won't say more. Uh, understand that the life of the Beatitudes is not a bunch of high and unattainable standards. This is the life that is a gift that God gives us in Jesus. Jesus is teaching us to be like himself. And Jesus is saying, this is real living. Jesus was utterly dependent on the Father. He demonstrated gentle strength under control. He was deeply and genuinely touched by our sorrows, passionate and relentless in his pursuit of goodness. The very example of purity of heart the peacemaker who laid his, down his life to be our peace. And so living out the Beatitudes is a privilege bought by his blood and empowered by his spirit. The first thing of the way of Jesus, I have begun, what? Following Jesus and am depending on the spirit of Jesus in my journey. The Beatitudes are a chore. They are a burden when we try and do it on our own. It is quite different when we depend upon the Spirit of Jesus in our journey. 
Some of you will know this prayer. It is attributed to St. Francis, wrongly, but it's called the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's ha- hatred, let me bring what? Love. Where there's offense, let me bring pardon. Where there's discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. And where there is sadness, let me bring joy. This sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? It's your privilege and mine to live this out. Now we are just going to move right on to the very, very end of the message. We, as here on Chapel, are working with this mission statement, loving Jesus, serving others together. Pretty good, simple statement, right? Loving Jesus, serving others together. We can make a difference. We can be salt and light in this world that so much needs the salt and light of those who will live like Jesus, for Jesus, and in the power of his Spirit. Some of you will have heard of the Halo Project. Here on Chapel was part of the Halo Project. And more than a million dollars worth, and of course we always use money to figure out what the value of something is. There was a study done about the value of a church like here on Chapel in a community. And it was calculated that well over a million dollars worth of value came out of the ministry, the life of the congregation. Not the building, not the pastors, but the people. Us, you. Isn't that beautiful? Not that we're perfect. But praise God for what he is doing because of the reality of Jesus in our lives. Loving Jesus, serving others together. And yes, it does make a difference. Statistically, it is a fact. Regular churches make more responsible choices, have better health. Oh, look at that. Maybe I should start going to church, have better health. Live longer, volunteer more, give more to charitable causes. It's a fact. There is a halo effect. Where there is a congregation established, it does something to the neighborhood. It brings more social benefits. So, what's the answer? Become a regular churchgoer? Is that what this is about? Absolutely not. It is about coming to Jesus. Loving Jesus. Serving others together. Amen? And so, let's move right along to the text that introduces us to the Lord's table. Because the Lord who gave his life for us, who showed us a better way, is inviting us to join him. And so we have these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Slow down for just a moment. Think about that. 
It means he died for me. That's what it means. Remember. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. What? In remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming again. Amen? Amen. I'll invite those who are helping to serve this morning to join me and let's prepare our hearts before the Lord to come, to say thank you, to say, Jesus, I recommit my life to you.